This morning we are continuing in our study of the book of Judges. So Judges chapter 3, if you'd like to turn there with me. Judges chapter 3, seventh book of the Bible. After three, three weeks of introduction, today we are finally at the first of the twelve judges. Othniel, the son of Kenaz. As we'll see here in a moment, Othniel is not the most flashy of judges, and his exploits are certainly not as uh, sensational as the others. We only get five verses on him, essentially. But Othniel, as the first judge, is the only judge that's presented to us without flaws. So it's kind of unique, actually, in the sense of today's sermon is... And our, past, our look at Othniel is not like what we're going to see in the remaining uh, chapters of this book. He's the only one that's presented to us without flaws. Thank you. But in this, he is held up as kind of the standard. The standard judge. The, 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 the paradigm of a ruler, of what a ruler ought to be. And he kind of gives us the key to how to evaluate the rest of the judges in this book and their faithfulness, or rather their unfaithfulness, to the Lord. So our passage this morning is Judges chapter 3. We'll read verses 7 through 11. Othniel, the first judge. Let's give our attention now to the reading of God's Word. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asheroth. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathim, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan Rishathim eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them. Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, the Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Kishan Rishathim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and his hand prevailed over Kishan Rishathim. So the land had rest forty years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. Amen. Pray with me again. Lord, we do ask that you would pour out your Holy Spirit, that your word might be received in faith, that it might not be forgotten, that we might take every thought captive to the knowledge of Christ. Grant this, O Lord, according to your steadfast love. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Well, if I had to guess, the book of Judges is not one of your go-to passages if you wanted to explain the grand narrative and central message of the Bible. If you were talking to an unbeliever and you wanted to summarize, what does the Bible teach? What's its big message? What's its grand narrative, the big picture? My guess is that you would not go to the book of Judges. Judges is so full of Confusing and baffling behavior, blood and gore, sexual immorality and per perversion, debauchery, shocking, 
of every kind, human sacrifice, even among God's people. It is a bizarre book, and it's hard to understand. So what in the world does this book have to do with the gospel and God's plan of redemption? At times, it can be hard to see that when we read through this, the account of these judges. But even more so, if I were to press it just a little bit further, even if you did go to judges in an attempt to understand the big picture, what are the chances that you'd turn to the story of Othniel? Out of kindness, I won't ask for a show of hands, but how many of you, before today's scripture reading, if I were to ask you, can you name the 12 judges, would have thought of Othniel? Which one, who, would, who here would be able to name him and remember him as one of the judges? We all think of Samson and, and Gideon, maybe Deborah, but that's really about it. We probably can't name the 12 judges, and most certainly, most of us probably don't think of Othniel when we think of the book of Judges. Well, in case you haven't noticed, the title of today's message is The Gospel According to Othniel. And this is an intentional title because I want you to see that in this story we get a picture of the gospel. I want you to see how in this story we see the grand narrative of Scripture in these few verses. I want you to see how this judge, Othniel, is a Christ figure who anticipates the one to come. You see, packed into these five brief verses, we see this pattern, this cycle that characterizes the entire book of Judges. There's peace before God's people sin. In response, God brings judgment. They cry out to Him for help, or at least sometimes they do. Many times in the book they don't. God rescues them through a divine deliverer, a judge. And peace is restored once again. This, this is the pattern, uh, the, 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 the grid which repeats itself throughout the entire book. And it helps us in these five verses to see what's about to come next and to see this pattern stretched out over the remaining 11 judges. And of course, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, Othniel himself from the tribe of Judah Presented to us without flaws is the standard. He is the paradigm of what a ruler ought to be, what a judge ought to be. And he stands in contrast to the flawed and sinful judges that follow. Well, if all of this sounds familiar to you, it should. Because this cycle also represents redemptive history. Everything began with peace in the Garden of Eden, but then Adam and Eve sinned, and God brought punishment. Yet out of His mercy for fallen sinners, God raised up a deliverer, a powerful figure who rises above all, the Lord Jesus Christ. He judges, He conquers, He wins the victory for God's people, and peace is restored once again. So this morning, I want you to see how this passage preaches the gospel to us. 
And I want you to see how we can look at it and learn about human sinfulness and about God's mercy and about His powerful deliverance through a human Savior and the great salvation that we enjoy because of His conquering work on our behalf. So with this in mind, let's dive into the details here and see what Othniel has to teach us. And I've got three headings this morning to kind of organize our thoughts. And the first thing we'll see is this. The downward progression of sin. The downward progression of sin. As I said before, the situation here in verse 7 is that Israel has entered the land under Joshua. They had peace all around them, even though there were some skirmishes that they needed to clean up. And all of that original generation was faithful to the Lord. But here, at least in this book, is where things begin their downward spiral. There was peace, but in verse 7, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They did so by forgetting the Lord and serving the Baals. In the big picture, the bigger picture that is, this of course was breaking the covenant that they made with God and God made with them when they came out of Egypt. This of course is a violation of the very first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. And the Lord and Him only shall you serve. And so, in response to this, as God said He would do, as God threatened that He would do, the Lord, after the anger of the Lord was kindled, He sold them into the hand of Kishan Rishathim. He does exactly what He said He would do in bringing the covenant curses to bear upon Israel. On a bigger level, of course, again in this book, we see a repeat, a replay of that original situation with Adam and Eve in the garden in Genesis 1 through 3. Adam disobeys and he breaks the covenant of works that God made with him at creation. And God brought covenantal curses to bear upon him. But I want you to pay attention to how this happens. Notice how the author says, they forgot the Lord their God. That's the root of what they did wrong here. What exactly does it mean to forget the Lord your God? Well, I want to submit to you that this statement has nothing to do with the intellect. All right? They didn't forget, you know, that God existed or what God had done. In fact, in verse 9, we see that they cried out to the Lord eventually. So we're not talking about a lapse in memory. What does it mean to forget the Lord your God? Well, this is a statement that hits at, hit, hits at their devotion to the Lord. To the centrality that the Lord was to have in their lives. For the love for the Lord that they were to have as well. This is what it means to forget the Lord your God. Not intellectually, but forget in your heart. For those of us here who have children or younger siblings, you know exactly what I'm talking about. 
<laughs> Why did you eat that cookie without permission? Don't you know that's against the rules? Oh, I'm sorry, Dad, I forgot. Why did you hit your sibling? That's not allowed. Why did you play video games before your chores were done? Don't you know that the rules of this household? Oh, I didn't remember. It's the very common excuse. This is what is entailed in forgetting the Lord their God. Perhaps there was a temporary and you know, in the case of children, a very convenient lapse of memory, right, at some point. But the root of this behavior is a purposeful and sinful neglect to value and remember and abide by the rules and to honor the rule giver. To fail to remember the father's rules in a household isn't just a disrespect for the rules. It's a disrespect towards our father. And a failure to honor him as the head of the household. On a much smaller scale, perhaps this is like a spouse who forgets an anniversary, right? There might have a temporary lapse of judgment having to do with something there. But ultimately that hurts because it ultimately says something about how important those vows, that relationship, their spouse is. When they don't even remember to celebrate the day that they were united in marriage. Well, the same is going on here as well. Over and over again, throughout the book of Deuteronomy, God warns them about forgetting Him. Do not forget me. You are to speak of these things when you lie down, when you go on the way, when you rise. Constantly you are to put these things before you, lest you forget the Lord your God. Lest you forget how I delivered you powerfully by my mighty arm from Pharaoh in the land of Egypt. He's talking about remembering in their hearts a failure to remember the Lord in their hearts. Of course, we know from this is that when the Lord is not kept central, we all know this from experience, that you know, the sinfulness, the flesh that clings to us so closely will always lead us astray. So here with Israel, that's what we have. Because the Lord was not central, because they weren't devoted to Him, they were open and vulnerable to the siren songs of those gods all around them. I mentioned last week, and this is something we'll return to again and again because we have to keep it in front of our memory here as we think about what was so enticing with Baal. Baal was the rain and fertility god. And Asheroth was his female cohort. And so for Baal to give blessings of rain and fertility, the things that were really pressing and necessary uh, for life in that day and age, Baal and Asheroth had to get together. Sexually. And that's when blessings would flow down to the rest of us. And so to encourage this, in order to, to, to get those things, uh, the worshiper would go to a high place, an altar, and, and normally have relations with a temple prostitute. And this was an act of worship that was to, to stir up Baal so that blessings would come. And so when you think about this in relation to Yahweh... Here, Baal promised material prosperity. 
Well, Yahweh demanded first and foremost allegiance. With Baal, you had worship that was exciting, to say the least, appealing to the flesh. What about with Yahweh? You had to bring a bloody sacrifice. You had to go through rituals of washings and cleansing and and all of these things. You had to go through a priest. With Baal, morality didn't matter. But Yahweh demanded the strict code of ethics. See, don't you see how enticing Baal would have been to them? Don't you see how similar this is to the temptations and the false gospels all around us in our day and age? Don't you see how people still forsake the church, forsake right worship, forsake morality in favor of health and wealth and prosperity and sexual freedom? Brethren, let us learn from this, lest we forget the Lord our God. Think about just in relation to your own sin, how often you you fall into sin and you look back and you realize, I've forgotten who I was, who I am. I have forgotten who I am in Christ. I have forgotten the vows that I made in my baptism. I've forgotten the vows that I made in my marriage. I've forgotten His Word. I've forgotten His nature. I've forgotten His promises. What was I doing? This is why there is wisdom in hiding His Word in your heart so that you might not sin against Him. This is why regular communion with the Lord through through prayer and, and the Word of God is central to the Christian life. This is why corporate worship, the church, the means of grace are ground zero for Christian living. Our tendency is to forget God and live in our own strength. Our tendency is to forget our need for continual grace. To forget that this world is not our home. To forget the power of the enemy and his deception. To forget that our hope Our satisfaction and our identity are ultimately found not in the things of this world, but in the things of God in Christ. Weekly worship is that regular reminder that that what's out there does not ultimately represent reality. It does not represent what our lives are most fundamentally about. What is most real about us is our identity in Christ and our place in His body. What what is most central to who we are and what is going on in this world is God's Word, God's promises, the Lord's Supper. It's no accident when Jesus commands us to observe this meal that He says, do this, what? in remembrance of me. This is why we ought to do everything in our power to pull up a chair to this table every chance that we get. This is why the Christian Sabbath, the Lord's Day, is so central to the Christian life because without it, we forget. We will forget. And we have no hope 
to withstand those temptations that are all around us. It is here and with the blessings of His presence that sustain us when temptations are all around us and when we neglect those means of grace, when we forget the Lord by allowing other things in life to become more central, that is the first step. That first step that will inevitably leave, lead downward. That's what we see here with Israel. They forgot the Lord, and the text says that they served the Baals, verse 7. And what's the result of this? They served Kushan Rishathim, verse 8. Serve, serve. Kushan Rishathim uh, means literally uh, doubly wicked or exceedingly wicked. That's what the term means. We don't know if that's a, a nickname that he gave himself to, to terrify his enemies, you know, kind of like Ivan the Terrible, right? <laughs> um, Alexander the Great. We don't know if it's that or, or maybe it's an Israel that, that, uh, a name, nickname that Israel gave him to, um, you know, in, in a sense of this was the guy that was brutal. But the point is clear. Whether he gave himself the name or Israel did, he was notoriously wicked and cruel. And God gave Israel into his hand. This is the language of slavery, into the hand. So just think about this. The service of Baal led to the service of a wicked master. Israel was supposed to serve Yahweh. That's why they were delivered from Egypt. That's why they were freed from Pharaoh, that they might serve the Lord their God. But what seems like freedom to them ends up being their bondage. And in the flash of an eye, they are brought right back to Egypt, as it were, under the rule of this wicked king. Let us make no mistake about it. If we do not serve the Lord, we will serve someone. And sin is a wicked and cruel master. This is a downward progression of sin. They forgot their Lord, their God. They served the Baals, leading them to serve in slavery a wicked master. Hi. Hello. My phone's talking to me. Great point of transition. But just like Adam fell into sin and was under God's wrath and curse, we see the same thing here as well. So secondly, we see a divine deliverer. A divine deliverer. Look here in verses 9-10. through 10. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel, the son of Kenez, Caleb's younger brother. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Kushan Rishathim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. Eight years go by, eight years of toil, giving the fruit of your labors to a wicked king, Eight years of seeing your sons killed or put into forced labor, labor. Eight years of your daughters and wives being carried off as spoil. Eight 
long years. And finally, Israel has enough. In verse 9, they cry out to the Lord. As I've argued before, rarely in the book of Judges does Israel actually repent and turn to obedience. And that's no different here either. This is not a cry of repentance. This is not the cry of acknowledging their sin. Rather, this is simply the cry of anguish, the cry of pain, the cry of misery, a cry that screams out nothing except, we are in great need and distress. And brethren, here we see this, this kind of picture, this encapsulation of another grand narrative in Scripture. Salvation does not come from us working our way up to God. It doesn't come when, when, when we you know, uh, come to our senses and right ourselves and then God is pleased to act. All throughout Scripture, it is God who reaches down to us and rescues His people from anguish. All throughout Scripture is God coming to us when we are unable to go to Him. What's on display in this is is the grace and power of the Lord, not Israel's deserving of it, not Israel's repentance, as we see in verse 12, as they soon return to their sin once again, as they do again and again and again in this book. And yet, amazingly, God still rescues them again and again and again. He still delights to show mercy towards them and kindness and salvation despite the fact that they've used up all their chances, as it were. Despite the fact that they do not deserve anything. All that God requires of us is to feel our need of Him. And that's a picture of what we see here. But notice how in the story the tables are suddenly turned. First, the Lord gave Israel into the hand of Cushan Rishathim. And now He gives Cushan Rishathim into the hand of Othniel. See the literary device there? The point is that none of this is happening by chance. The Lord is the one who holds all the cards. He uses Cushan Rishathim to punish Israel. And then He turns and uses Othniel, to punish Kushan Rishathim. The actor in this drama is not Israel. It's not Kushan Rishathim. And it's not even Othniel. The main actor of this drama is the Lord. He raises up and removes kings. He empowers His servants to fulfill His divine purposes. But although we have no details of the battle or the victory, what can we learn here about how it is that Othniel saves Israel? A few things I want to point out. We see that he's the son of Kenaz. This means he is a Kenite. Kenites were not native Israelites. They joined up with Israel in the conquest, and essentially they were adopted into the tribe of Judah. 
Perhaps in some respect, this foreshadows the inclusion of the Gentiles, right? That Jesus Christ would bring in the new covenant, kind of like, you know, maybe Ruth the Moabite being included in the messianic line of Christ. But more importantly is, that we understand from chapter 1 that he was a man of great strength, of great character, of great honor. We'll consider chapter 1 in just a moment. But what the writer really wants us to know also is that Othniel was Caleb's younger brother. That could mean um, maybe he is um, a grandson of Caleb, or it could mean he's a nephew of Caleb, um, something like that. Uh, we don't know for sure, but it says simply Caleb's younger brother. He is related to Caleb, the, that obedient and faithful servant of the Lord. But the point, the main point, Everything that we need to know about him is found in verse 10. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. This is the key to his success. The Spirit was upon him. God sends forth his Spirit and raises up and empowers a deliverer. God sends forth His Spirit and uses a human agent to accomplish His purpose in salvation. Now, of course, the Spirit of the Lord is not to be equated with the indwelling of the Spirit in the New Testament. This is not for personal holiness or sanctification. But this is typological. Typological for us. The Spirit was divine agency, power, potency to wage war against the enemies of Israel. In a similar sense, we can say that the Spirit is given to us so that we might wage war, not against physical enemies, but against sin, Satan, and the flesh. But the point, again, the hero of the story is not Othniel. The hero of the story is the person of the Holy Spirit. Salvation is and always has been from the Lord. The Holy Spirit takes upon Himself the accomplishment of it. It's all throughout redemptive history. Mankind is only a secondary participant, a recipient of the power and salvation of the Lord. But notice how this salvation is completed, is accomplished. In verse 10, we read that he judged Israel. And then he went out to war and God gave him victory. Why does it matter that he judged Israel? What does that mean before he went out and won the battle? What does a judge do? Have you ever been to a courtroom and seen the statue or the image of Lady Justice? Right, Lady Justice stands with scales in her left hand, a sword in her right hand, and she's blindfolded. Now she's, a, she's a figure of justice. She, she bears the, the power of the sword to punish evildoers, right? But she's blindfolded so she won't show bias or partiality, and she's weighing the scales of right and wrong. So to judge Israel means to determine right from wrong. And in God's economy, to judge means to punish evil and to promote righteousness. In other parts of Scripture, we read that to rightly judge is in Israel is to remove the high places of false worship and the false God. 
And that's what we ought to see with Othniel Hill here. Empowered by the Holy Spirit, he's draining the swamp, as it were. He's cleaning out Israel. He's putting away sin and idolatry, dealing with it. And thus, when he does that, the Lord's anger is appeased. And he gives them victory over their cruel master. Othniel here is acting as a greater Adam. Remember what was set before Adam. The tree of knowledge and good and evil. What is the knowledge of good and evil? It is the discernment, right judgment, right from wrong. The tree was the place of Adam's testing. Adam was called to rightly judge right from wrong, to rightly punish the serpent, to rightly cleanse God's holy place of evil. So where Adam failed to judge rightly, here is Othniel, empowered by the Spirit, victorious, and through this divine deliverer, judgment is wrought and God's people are saved. This is a gracious God. This is a powerful God. This is a God who raises up a human Savior to deliver His people from bondage. And that leads us to our third and final consideration today. The downward progression of sin, the divine deliverer in Othniel, and now thirdly, the disheartening conclusion. The disheartening conclusion. It may seem odd to say that the conclusion of the story is disheartening because it certainly doesn't look that way at first glance. We read in verse 11 that after this, the land had rest for 40 years. Just like Adam, right? Before the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he was called to judge rightly, right from wrong, and thus enter God's rest symbolized in the seventh day Sabbath at the end of the creation account. That was the reward of the covenant of works that was laid before him. And so here you have Othniel judging right from wrong and entering that rest as the land had rest for 40 years. But in this, Othniel's deliverance didn't just free the nation, the land had rest. That's a reflection of the the spiritual state of Israel. The land was free and clean from idolatry. God's presence was among them. That was key there. The need for the cleansing of the land so that God would dwell among them. And of course, for us, that foreshadows the very end of all things. It foreshadows how in the Revelation, the book of Revelation, our eternal state and inheritance is described as our rest. The Sabbath rest of God. This is where God's presence dwells. This is where no unclean is allowed into the land of the new heavens and the new earth. But the problem with this, the disheartening conclusion, is that in this story, it did not last. The story closes with an ominous note. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. What happens in the very next verse? And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. It all starts over again. 
Though Othniel was God's divine deliverer, he was a temporary rather than a permanent solution to the problem. And brethren, as we draw this to a conclusion, we ought to see how this here now preaches the gospel to us. Who was Othniel really? And why was he so special? It's because he is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ and the salvation that he has accomplished for us. In our bulletin, I noted that verses, excuse me, chapter 1, verses 12 through 15 are a secondary text to our sermon today. And I think that I did this because I think it helps fill in the big picture about Othniel. Turn there with me, if you will, one page back. Remember how the book opens, the very first verse? Israel asks God, who's going to go up for us? And who does God say? He answers and says, Judah. Here then is Othniel from the tribe of Judah. And in chapter 1, verse 12, we read this. Caleb said, He who attacks Kiriath-Sephir and captures it, I will give him Axal, my wife, for a, my daughter, for a wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenez, Caleb's younger brother, captured it. And he gave him Axal, his daughter, for a wife. When she came to him, she urged him to ask her father for a field. And she dismounted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Give me a blessing. Since you have sent, set me in the land of the Negeb, give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. You see, one amazing aspect of this story is that just as we see throughout Scripture, it's an outsider, a Kenite, and a woman, someone who was marginalized in that society, who end up being the example of true, genuine, radical faith in contrast to the rest of the nation of Israel. And here we have Othniel. He captures the castle and he wins the girl, as it were. And he takes an Israelite for a wife, which is in contrast to men like Samson and, and, and uh, the disobedience of the rest of Israel that we read at the end of chapter 2. And Othniel's wife, Axal, is exemplified by dismounting her donkey, which is a show of honor and respect, like bowing towards someone. And she expresses her desire to settle in the promised land and enjoy its blessings. This is a sign of her great faith. She seizes the promise of God and she believes in it. So in this we have Othniel exemplifying what a leader should be. He is filled with the Spirit. He judges Israel. He cleanses the holy land through holy war and he takes a bride and together they settle in the land and enjoy rest. And this all teaches us about Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came from the tribe of Judah. Jesus Christ came from an unlikely place, Bethlehem, the least of all cities, right? Uh, the, the virgin womb of Mary through the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ had the Spirit without measure. Jesus Christ faced the tree of judgment, the cross, where He became sin for us and He put an end to sin and ushered in what? Everlasting righteousness. Righteousness. 
It's through the cross that Jesus judges His people. Sin is rightly punished because He takes it upon Himself. Everlasting righteousness is imputed to us. We are being sanctified and made holy each and every day to be completed at the last day. And not only this, but Jesus Christ too captures the castle and wins the bride. We are the bride of Christ. We enjoy the spoils of His victory. Because of His work, we enjoy the blessings that He has earned, just like Axel here. We too have a right and a claim to that eternal land of promise and those springs of eternal life in the river of life to nourish and sustain us for all eternity. Jesus as well is that great warrior. He conquered sin, Satan, and death, all the cruel masters over us. He binds the strong man and plunders his house. He stands up in the synagogue in Luke 4 and says, I have come to proclaim liberty to the captives. And the good news about this, in contrast to Othniel, is that though he died, he rose again. He ascended to the right hand of the Father. And so He ever lives and reigns for us. Because He lives, we live. Othniel, like the other human deliverers, were many in number, but they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus Christ reigns forever because He lives forever by the power of an indestructible life. And thus He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to Him because He ever lives to make intercession for us. This is the Gospel according to Othniel. This is our sin and bondage on display. This is our inability to free ourselves from our masters by nature. This is our call to cry for help and see our need for Him. This is the mercy of God coming down when we are unable to go to Him. This is our natural sin and forgetfulness and need for the Spirit, the Spirit that unlike with Israel, was promised as a term and and a gift of the new covenant and He keeps us and preserves us to the end. And this is our judge. One who not only takes upon our sin, but fulfills all righteousness and gives that to us. This is God's deliverer, conquering for His bride, conquering and defeating all His and our enemies, ushering us into that land of rest where we will enjoy the eternal blessings in His presence. This is a human Savior, but this is a divine Savior. The Lord Jesus Christ, and He ever lives for you and for me. This passage calls us this morning, calls you to see yourself in Israel. It calls you to feel your need for Him. The answer to to your sin and your struggles and the solution, the hope, the deliverance. The message of the Bible is not that you can claw and scratch your way up to God and make yourself worthy. If you do that, Your sin 
Satan will crush you if you're trying to do it yourself. You will be crushed. You must admit your need and put your faith in another deliverer. Put your trust in God's divine deliverer and rest in His work and His constant, continual intercession for you, even now. That's the message of Othniel. May God give us grace. May God give us faith to see Christ in this passage and to receive Him through faith. Let's pray.